Well, if you guys have your Bibles with you, you can go to Hebrews chapter 8. We've been in the book of Hebrews for a year or so now, and we've gotten to this chapter. I'm super excited to preach through chapters 8 through 10 because it gives us an amazing snapshot of the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. You know how many people there are in the world who read through the Bible or, or get some of the stories and they, they try to put the pieces together. They try to understand how is it that the God of the Old Testament who commanded the conquest of Canaan, who, who brought the people out of Egypt, parted the Red Sea, who did all these great and mighty works, who, who wrote, had kings raised up and fall and who saved people and brought nations together for battle. How does that God, how does that story relate to Jesus, relate to the New Testament? In fact, the misunderstanding of the relationship between Old and New Testaments is one of those things that tends to be at the center of all the false religions that claim Christianity as its root. That is, that people who continually and persistently look to the Old Testament, misunderstanding the way that we are to view it in light of the new, produce all kinds of heresies. In order to best understand the passage we're about to go through, 8 through 10, chapters 8 through 10, you need to understand something about the context and the expectations of the audience. And quite simply, that's all I hope to do today. It's going to be a little shorter sermon. My hope today is just to help you understand the context and the expectations of the audience. As much as I can try to, I want to help you think like a recipient of this letter might have thought. The authors of Hebrews, Hebrews has just spent the last seven and a half chapters comparing Jesus with angels. Comparing Jesus with Moses, with Joshua, with Abraham, with the high priests. And each time he shows that Jesus is better, better in every way. Now, he's about to compare the old covenant with the new covenant. And in so doing, he's going to show us how it is that the new covenant is superior to the old covenant. In fact, it's as much superior to the old as Jesus is superior to all the people in the old. So I'm just going to go ahead and read through our text today. If you have your Bibles, you can, you can stick in Hebrews chapter 8. I'm going to read 6, actually through 13. I'm just going to add that in to get to the end of the chapter just as we read it together. And we're only going to cover a few of those verses today. We'll get through verse 9. But I'm going to read through this whole section out loud. Later, I'll put up uh, the verses from Hebrews on the slides. Uh, you can follow along as I dive back into the Old Testament a bit and even into the New Testament if you'd like. But the, the slides that we're covering in Hebrews will be up there for you. Let me read Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 through 13. I'm going to pray and then we'll dive back in. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. 
For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Let's pray. Lord, as we always pray when we open your word, we ask for you to help us overcome any hindrance to understanding. We ask for you to help us overcome intellectual hindrances, that we'd we'd make sense of the things that you say here. But Lord, even more so, we ask that you'd overcome the sinful hindrances in our hearts, the things that are of the sinful human nature, the the things that would compel us to misunderstand for selfish gain. Lord, help us to deal with that. Help us to see this rightly. We want to honor you. We want to praise you. We want to submit to your word, not just our thinking. Lord, that's a supernatural ask. So send your spirit, we ask. Help us to understand and worship you rightly. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're gonna talk about covenants for a while. The next three chapters, we're gonna talk about covenant quite a bit. The word covenant shows up 17 times in the book of Hebrews, 14 times in these three chapters alone. So quickly, let's, let's kind of cover. What is a covenant? Here's a simple definition for you. A covenant is an agreement which brings about a relationship of commitment between two parties. I'll say it again. A covenant is an agreement which brings about a relationship of commitment between two parties. A covenant is different than a contract. It's different than a contract because a contract is quite simply pretty sterile. Both a covenant and a contract include a promise or a list of promises, but a covenant necessarily involves a relationship, while a contract does not. So just let's let's set the stage and get this right in our minds, okay? So by way of example, imagine a real estate contract. If you were to buy a property, you may never even meet the owner of that property. That's not much of a relationship. That's a contract. You sign on the line, you bring what you were supposed to do, they deliver what they were supposed to deliver. Contract. But consider, on the other hand, marriage. The marriage contract is a covenant. The vows that you make at a wedding are covenant vows because marriage brings about a relationship of commitment. Get it? It's not just the sterile, I will do, you will do. There's a relationship demanded as a part of that commitment. That's what a covenant is. Now, there are more parts to a covenant, but certainly not less. Covenant is relational. In the Bible, there are many such covenants, some of which are between individual people. So so we see covenants in the Bible between people like Laban and Jacob. They come with a covenant agreement about the sheep and the goats we might see it between someone like David and Jonathan. They have a covenant bond between them. They make a promise to each other. You also see covenant relationships established between groups, tribes, 
nations. So like Abraham's camp and Abimelech's men. Or maybe, maybe through, uh, through between Israel and the Gibeonites. Covenants are made between groups of people. But none of these covenants are nearly as important as those that God makes with his people. God is the ultimate promise maker. And he is the ultimate promise keeper. Our God, actually, is the kind of God who commits himself to mankind. When he makes a promise, you can be certain that he will keep his promise. And that is a staggering reality. That a creator would make a covenant with creation that binds himself to something. Can God break his promise? No. Because it is contrary to his nature. God has bound himself to us in the making of covenants with humankind. And he's done this throughout the entire history of the Bible. Now, throughout the entirety of Scripture, God enters into a number of crucial covenants with people. These covenants are the background upon which the entire Bible history has been recorded. To say it in another way, if you were to open your Bible and kind of do that random little flip, grab a page... Any page that you grab at random, that page was written by someone who was living within a particular covenant with God and who was writing sacred scripture in light of that covenant. See? So in order to understand the context of a given text of scripture, it's absolutely critical to know which covenant it was written within. This is why some have even said that the covenants form the backbone of the storyline of the Bible. As you might imagine, there are various views on how we should see covenants in the Bible. Christians throughout the ages have asked the questions, how many covenants are there? Which was the first of these covenants? Which is the highest? What exactly is the nature of each of the covenants between God and man we see in the Bible? How much continuity should we expect between covenants? Does this one start? And then end when the other begins? Or do they overlap? What's the relationship between the covenants of God and the Bible? Now, just to give you a quick background, not exhaustive, but just a quick help. Some see the first and highest covenant in all of existence as taking place prior to creation. Between the members of the Trinity. Between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In fact, historically, this has been referred to as the covenant of redemption. And what comes to mind is that there was agreement between Father, Son, and Spirit and the salvation of all the elect in the working out of God's redemptive plan throughout history. In other words, the Holy Spirit, the Son, and the Father were not winging it as they were going. Hey, let's do this next. What about this? But they came up with a plan. They made an agreement with how they were going to work out this plan. And our one Trinitarian God enacted that plan throughout redemptive history. Some see that. Some see that the first covenant between God and man takes place in the Garden of Eden. Some, some see that. With Adam. In fact, they'll refer to this as the covenant of creation or the Adamic covenant with Adam or the covenant of Eden. And it was a covenant of works. It was a covenant of law. We do see one reference in Hosea that refers to Adam breaking the covenant. So maybe that's a Good place to start if we're trying to understand if that is a covenant. But people would say it looks like this. God made a covenant with Adam. And it had 
It had promises made that each party bound themselves to. And so they'll say, look, God gives this command to Adam. Don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and you will live. Eat of it, and you will die. Adam breaks the covenant. Death enters the world. You see that? So some, some, some claim that that's the first covenant between God and man. Last week, or last week that I was in this, uh, this text, last week I showed you that the first time the word covenant shows up in the Bible is with Noah. Remember Noah and the ark? Gets in the ark, takes the animals with him, comes out the other end. The earth has just been destroyed. They're starting all over afresh. And what does God establish with Noah and not just him, but all of creation? A covenant. And what were the terms of that covenant? Do you remember? That he will not, that God will not ever again destroy the earth by a deluge of water. And the symbol, the sign for that covenant was the rainbow in the sky. It's a promise God made with all of creation. They called it the covenant with Noah. Then he makes a covenant with Abraham, promising that he would multiply Abraham into a great nation and that all the families of earth will be blessed through his offspring, which later will become very clear, spoiler alert, that that offspring is Jesus. But what you really have to understand as you come to the book of Hebrews is these two things. As you get to this 8 through 10, chapters 8 through 10 in Hebrews, you have to understand these two things. First, you need to understand the covenant that the audience of Hebrews is currently under. And second, the covenant that they are looking forward to. The author expects his audience to have a working knowledge of those two things in order to make the comparison. In other words, he's not going to say, hey, you've never heard of this old covenant, let me explain. You've never heard of a new covenant, let me explain. He presumes the audience understands an old covenant and a coming new one. One that they're currently living under and one they're looking forward to. That's what the author expects. And so for us to gain the same insight that these people would gain... We need to get our minds and our hearts there. That's what I'm hoping to accomplish today. And I think that this is going to become very clear as we get into the text. So again, if you have your Bibles, go to Hebrews 8. Starting 6 through 7. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it's enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Now, just quick pause. The rest of this chapter is the author's scripture proof for these two sentences. In other words, this is what he's trying to say. This is the claim that he's making, and he's just going to back it up with, with text of scripture. You know, we've seen that as we've gone through the book of Hebrews. The author doesn't just appeal to his own authority or, hey, this makes sense to me. Isn't this logical to you? He makes a claim and then he proves it from the scriptures. That's what he does. If you wanted to take the scripture proofs out and just believe each of the individual statements, you could summarize the book of Hebrews down to about a paragraph, a long paragraph, but one. And this is the point he's making in chapter eight, the second half of chapter eight. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Now you'll notice that these words first and second show up, but we need to not think of them too much ordinarily like we, we would in our words in English. If we think about the word first, you might have in mind primary or the initial, initial uh, covenant. Nothing came before that. Uh, but the term really means preceding. So it's referring to a preceding covenant and then one that follows it. 
In other words, the author does not mean to undermine the Old Testament references to multiple covenants, but he zeroes in on two. To say it a different way, as far as the author of Hebrews is concerned, there are two covenants, old and new. For the record, this is why I don't think that you have to have a full understanding knowledge of all the different covenantal views in order to make sense of Hebrews. Because the author is going to help us deal with just two. That's all he cares to deal with. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. What is the first covenant to which he is referring? What is that fault-filled covenant? The Mosaic covenant. It's the covenant that God makes with his people in the days of Moses. And how can we know that that's true? Because of what the author writes next. Don't worry, all of these verses we're going to have to come back and do yet again next week to set the stage up for the verses that will come following. We'll, we'll cover things we're not hitting today. But how can we know this is talking about the Mosaic covenant? Because of what he says next. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So there's a coming new covenant. Not like the first covenant. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. It's not like that one. He's going to give a new one. Not like the one that took place during the days of the rescue of the people of Israel from Egypt. Now, quick review on the Mosaic Covenant. Because we're going to have to understand what the Hebrews understood. God had rescued the people out of slavery in Egypt. That was the whole affair with Moses. sees the burning bush, goes to Pharaoh, let my people go. Ten plagues come down. The people are eventually ushered through two walls of water left and right. Miracle to happen that no one could doubt. God is here. No one, no one waded through a stream and went, we kind of did that. They went, God did this. They made their way to Mount Sinai. It's a mountain in the middle of the wilderness. It was the same place the burning bush shows up. And God speaks to Moses at first. He brings the people back to this place. He gives them water. He provides for them to have uh, relief from enemies who want to attack them. He gives them a, a system of judges to help manage the giant crowd of people that are gathered together. He officially, at Mount Sinai, makes them into a nation. And it's there, as we see in Exodus 20, that God gives them a law. Ten Commandments. And after these Ten Commandments, he continues to give them more. He gives them ceremonial laws. He gives them civil laws that tell them all kinds of things they need to know, even about slavery, uh, theft and restitution, all matters of social justice. And he promises as the chief reward of their obedience to his commandments that he would give them the promised land and preserve and prosper them in it. That's the chief promise given the people, if they obey the commandments. I just want to read to you a little bit of that. I want you to see the text that we're about to get here. Exodus 23, 20 through 22. I'm going to read this out loud. You can just listen along or you can flip there. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. So that's, that's he's saying an angel of the Lord is going to come and lead you, guide you. Where to? Into the promised land, the land of Canaan, which you're going to take over. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgressions. For my name is in him. But if 
you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. He continues to give the opposite side of this. That's what's going to happen. You, you follow me. You be careful to obey my laws and commands. What's going to happen? I'm going to preserve you in that land. No enemies are going to kick you out. 32 through 33. You shall make no covenant with them, those Canaanites. Don't make a covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare for you. What do the people do when they hear this law given? They agree. They agree with God. They confirm the covenant with God. Israel was not dragged into this covenant relationship kicking and screaming. It was not unilateral. God could have said that, couldn't he? He's God. He could have said, this is how it's going to be. Do it this way. And they would go, oh, I guess that's what's going to happen. They made an agreement with God. In Exodus 24, 6 through 8, check this out. The people brought sacrifices, blood sacrifices, to ratify this covenant. And look at what, what it says. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant, and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So what happened? The people entered into an agreement with God. We'll obey. And they promised God obedience to his law. This is huge. They bound themselves to God based on a set of conditions. What were the conditions? That they would obey the law. We will obey the law. Now you need to know this, if you don't already. There are two kinds of covenants that God makes with people. Conditional and unconditional. Conditional covenants and unconditional covenants. Now, just, let's, let's parse this out for a second. Think about this. Consider the covenant God made with creation during the days of Noah, okay? The Noah covenant, that he will not destroy the earth. Was that a conditional or an unconditional covenant? It was unconditional. It was unilateral. It was a one-sided promise. God does not say to Noah, if you sin again, I'll bring more water. He doesn't say that. He says, no matter what you do, I promise I will not destroy the earth by water. You see how clear that one was there? He makes a promise with all creation, no matter what, no more water destruction. The same is true of the covenants that God makes with Abraham and later with David. Those are unconditional covenants. God tells Abraham that I will raise your seed up, that I will make you into a mighty nation, and that all the families of the earth will be blessed through your offspring. And he does not bind himself by any conditions in Noah. Excuse me, in Abraham. He doesn't go to Abraham and say, if you do this, then the offspring will rise up. If you, obey, if you hold out just right, then all families of the earth will be blessed through you. He doesn't. In fact, if you were to go back and look at that covenant, 
that God establishes with Abraham, you'll see that they actually do a ceremony. There was a common ritual to people making a covenant in the Old Testament days where there would be a a death of an animal, splitting of the parts of an animal, and the two parties making the covenant would walk between the part of the split animal in a way of saying, I'm binding myself by promise and oath that if I break my side of the covenant, I will have to be dead just like this animal was split in half. That's what actually the language, the Hebrew language, refers to the cutting of a covenant and the establishing of a new one. God entered through the parts of a split animal in 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 a vision with Abraham that Abraham watched God pass through and not himself. The point of this, God makes it incredibly clear that it is unconditional. It is not based upon anything that Abraham will ever do or will not do. It's not based on anything that Abraham's descendants will ever do or will not do. It is entirely unconditional. The only condition is met in God. Same is true with David. God says that I will raise up one of your descendants and I will put him on the throne forever. Does he say, David, as long as you remain true, As long as your successors remain true. No, he doesn't. None of his successors remain true. All of those kings fall and they worship false gods. But the promise stands because the nature of that covenant was unconditional. But the Mosaic covenant was entirely conditional. It was entirely dependent upon the works of the Israelites. This is why it can be rightly called a covenant of works. Now, you should know that many Christians in history have not called this a covenant of works, but as a different administration of the covenant of grace. This is one place that I, as a Baptist, disagree with my Presbyterian brethren. One of my, one of my dearest brothers, uh, Jason Wallace, is a Presbyterian a pastor. Love him dearly. I know he listens to all my sermons because he's trying to get better at preaching. Uh, so uh, every time we get together, we, we love spending time together, hashing things out. He's always trying to baptize my kids. I just tell him, first, you got to catch them. That's what I say. This is one of the places that'll be the undergirding for why it is that the Presbyterians go this direction with certain church practices and why, and why Baptists go this direction. If you're wondering, where, where does the deviation begin for difference between Baptists and Presbyterians? This really is foundational right here, okay? We don't see the Mosaic Covenant as a covenant of grace, primarily. We see, certainly, God is acting graciously. He could kill them at any moment he wants. He didn't have to provide ways for them to do sacrifices, we see that the new covenant is an entirely new and different thing. We see the Mosaic covenant as a covenant of works. It's based on the law. In fact, it's this understanding that is the basis for Paul's argument in Galatians. The people kept trying to revert back to a covenant of law rather than a covenant of grace. So Paul writes this in Galatians 2.21. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. He continues in chapter 3, verse 10. He says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. If you're under the law, you have to follow all of it. And if you don't, cursed. That's why he says later, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That's what happens on the cross. Jesus, who fulfills the law perfectly at every point, fulfills that law for us. In the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, the people of God were under the law. Now, real quick, so that this is not misunderstood. 
Rich, are you saying that a person must be saved in the Old Testament by obeying the law? No, I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that if you broke the law in the Old Testament, not that you would go to hell, but if you broke the law in the Old Testament, you'd get kicked out of the land. That would be what happens. Because the promise of the Mosaic Covenant is that God would preserve you in the land. Look at it this way. If the people did not uphold their side of the deal, look what the text says. The covenant would be broken. That's exactly what happened. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Why is it that the people were looking for a second covenant? Why did there need to be a second one coming, the new covenant coming? Why? Because they couldn't follow the first. They did not continue in it. What was the problem? Was the problem of the law? The problem was the people. It always is. This is always the case. We are the problem. He is the solution. We cast no blame on the law of God. There has never been a more equitable system of governance in the history of the world. And we should not be so arrogant to think that a bunch of elected representatives in our modern day can do a better job coming up with more just laws than God. His law is good and true and just. But we fail. The people fail. They did not continue in the covenant. God doesn't go, you know, that covenant really wasn't a good one. Hmm. The problem was sin. The Israelites couldn't hold up their end of the bargain. So what would happen when the people break this covenant? They get kicked out of the promised land. That's what happens. Let me read for you Leviticus 26. I, could, I almost read this whole chapter to you. I'm just going to read some parts and give you the summary here. Leviticus 26, I'm going to do verses 3 through 4 and then summarize with 12. Okay, watch this. If you walk in my statutes, if, if you walk in my statutes, Israelites, and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you rain in their season. And the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. And then he goes on to give this whole list of all this blessing. I'll kick out all the enemies. You'll send them to flight. Whatever you plant will flourish. Whatever you build will stand. The, even the wild beasts will flee from you. And I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people, he says. If, if you walk in my statutes. And then he tells the other side. Leviticus 26, 14 through 17. But if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you won't do those things, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments, but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consume the eyes and make the heart ache. And you shall sow your seed in vain for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you and you shall flee when none pursues you. And he summarizes in chapter 30, same chapter 26, verses 32 through 33. And I myself will devastate the land so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it. And I 
will scatter you among the nations and I will unsheathe the sword after you and your land shall be a desolation and your cities shall be a waste. So what would happen if the Israelites did not continue in their covenant with God? Do all of them go to hell? No. God says he would kick them out of the land. That's what he was going to do. They would no longer be a nation. They would be a scattered and devastated people. You see that? You and I enter into covenants with people in our lives and we cannot be certain what the outcome will be. In fact, anyone who's ever witnessed the pain of divorce knows that. What's one of the hardest things about divorce is that two people make a covenant together, they expect it to be lasting, and then there's the surprise of, I I thought this was going to last. That's the pain of it. But God knows exactly what the outcome is. He knows precisely what's going to happen when he makes his covenant with the people. In other words, God doesn't make a covenant with the people and then get hopeful. Hey, let's get hopeful. Let's hope. Let's hope they stand. Let's hope they do it. God knows exactly what is going to happen. In fact, one of the most surprising twists in all the the writings of Moses, what comes at the very end, Just as Moses is about to die, God gives him one more prophecy, one final prophecy, and he actually has him codify that prophecy in a song. Write this song, Moses. Why why, why a song? So that the people will hear it and they will remember it. You remember things in song. And they will sing this for generations. That They will not forget what I said. And this is what God prophesies and gives to Moses in Deuteronomy 31, verse 16. Check this out. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Die then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering. And they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Will God be surprised at the covenant breaking? Nope. And what will God do for centuries, centuries after this proclamation? He will care for and provide for and give grace and mercy to people who don't deserve it and whom he knows will turn their back on him. God is not hopeful that they will remain faithful. He knows that they will certainly break the covenant. So what does God do in light of this? He preemptively plans to establish another, better, unbreakable, unconditional, Permanent covenant of grace. One that cannot and will not be broken. Have you ever felt far from God? Even as a believer. You entered those seasons where you feel not close to him. What's the solution to that? Do you have an old covenant solution or do you have a new covenant solution? Do you just think, just work harder. Is, is that the solution to you? Man, I haven't been doing these things. I need to do these things so I can be in right relationship with God. That's what most people will tell you. Most people in the world. You're doing the wrong things. You need to do more of the right things. And then you can have peace with God. But God does not just tell his people, once you return back 
to the old covenant. Once you come back and start to fulfill those terms of the old covenant, then I will give you the land. Instead, he promises them an entirely new covenant. God builds into the old covenant a plan for a new and a better one. And the intended recipients of this letter are living under the old covenant while looking forward to a new one. And here's what I mean, okay? Jesus has already come. The new covenant has been established. But our author is working on convincing them of that. There's, there's an overlap time. There's a period of time where, where the temple still stands in Jerusalem and these Hebrews are trying to honor God. They've not yet heard the gospel. They've not yet had people come to tell them that the Messiah has actually come. It hasn't spread to that part of their world yet. And these people are operating under old covenant and they're being convinced by this writer. Look, I know the covenant that has been established between Moses and his people, the, the people of God, that old covenant. And I know that you're looking forward to a new and better one. And it is here. The people who lived in the New Testament day, in almost every book of the New Testament, they need to be constantly reminded that it's a covenant not of works, but a covenant of grace. Almost every book, the authors are like, please get this right. You're going to mess this up. Stop trying to work your way to God. Over and over. Christians struggle with this all the time. We need this very same reminder. We must, brothers and sisters in Christ, you believer today, listen carefully to this. You must have a right understanding of the relationship between faith and works. Your works cannot save you. They never could save you. Only the grace of God it is by grace, through faith, that you can be saved. And that necessarily produces good works. You see the difference? This is, this is so important. We have to talk about this all the time as a church because even believers struggle with this all the time. If only you do the right things, then you'll have peace with God. If only you do just the right, stop doing the bad, start doing the good, you're going to have peace. Stop. The appeal is to the grace of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And he will give you the power and the strength to overcome those wrong deeds. If I just get back to my quiet times and do all those things right, maybe a few weeks in, God will forget about the bad and start remembering seeing the good works. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? It happens all the time. And we are so prone to go back. We're constantly aching to be under again a covenant of works. Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. The new covenant we live in is a covenant of grace in Jesus because the only one who could fulfill all of those works, who could follow all that law perfectly is Jesus. If you're not a believer today and you're wondering, how does this work? How does that works, faith thing work out? You do need works to be saved. Jesus' works. He works on your behalf. And how can you have those works applied to you? By faith in Jesus. That when you stand before God someday on judgment day, because you die as a sinner, you die and stand before him and God says, why should you be allowed into heaven? What's the answer? I worked really hard. No, because his works, Jesus's perfect works have been applied to me. You must appeal to the grace of God and not to what you have done. Let this be our prayer. Dear Lord, we love you. 
We love you and we need your help to see this rightly. Help us to understand the relationship between faith and works. Help us to understand the relationship between the old covenant and the new. Help us to see what it is that our author of Hebrews is setting up for us so we don't miss this major truth that's being explained. Lord, I'm well aware that all throughout history, modern history, even in our regular interactions with brothers and sisters, even in our own sinful hearts right now, we so often think that we can somehow please you and come back under your good graces by doing the good works. Lord, remind us that it is grace that is a gift to us, not because of our works. Father, help us to never forget that it's not just grace that has brought us into the faith, but it is your grace that keeps us in the faith and gives us the strength to endure in the faith and to persevere in the faith. Father, as, as we are soon to turn into the passages that will tell us the difference between the old covenant and the new, help us to first begin to see that it is a covenant of grace rather than a covenant of works. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.